According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, returning where we left off last week as we're looking at verses 9 and 10, and then to the end of the chapter, 11 through 14. Important that we uh, celebrate how our Savior was uh, made perfect. He uh, already being perfect was then perfected. Having been made perfect, he became, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And this, of course, is something that we celebrate every time we think about it. The fact that we have a Savior and that he has saved us. Amen. All right, so we're going to build on this here this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father for His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blessing we have to assemble together in the recognition, Father, that we are a priesthood, that we are a body of believers in Christ, And Father, we are of those who have obeyed Him, have believed in Him, and have been made alive in Him. And I thank You for the book of Hebrews that demonstrates for us what our priesthood is about. And I pray today, as we fix our eyes on the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, that we would be better equipped to operate and function on a priestly basis. So Father, uh, make these things clear to each one of us. I thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have been looking at verses 9 and 10, and we've seen how even though he was perfect, he was made perfect, and this uh, is the fulfillment of what happens as he learns obedience from the things that he suffered. And we go through the same process, by the way. Uh, We don't like it. Some of us feel like we shouldn't have to suffer, uh, but that's only Satan and and, uh, his uh, lies. That's only this fallen world system that's telling us that uh, good people, bad things don't happen to good people. That's not true. Ever since the book of Job, we know that bad things do happen to good people. And uh, God uses these things and the undeserved suffering to shape us and to perfect us. Just as the word became flesh, the perfected sufferer became the source, the grounds, the basis for eternal salvation. And I like this. It's a legal term, and it's a term that's used in court proceedings. It's a term that's used, for example, if you're going to file an indictment, and if a prisoner is going to stand trial for something, he's got to be charged with something. There's got to be a grounds for his being uh, an indictment, uh, for him for his being held. And if you show up at the judge and there's no charges against you, there's no grounds for you to be arrested, well, then there's no basis for you to be tried. A judge can't possibly try you. And this was the circumstance when the Apostle Paul got to Rome and they said, we don't know anything about your case. Who are you? What's going on? And uh, there's no grounds for holding you. And it's that same legal language that we have here as Jesus is the grounds. He is the source. He is the basis for eternal salvation. And so uh, a lot there that we need to deal with. And then it says, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, the linkage between becoming the source and being designated, I think, is significant because the plan of God from eternity past was called for him to be the high priest. You are my son, today I have begotten you, and sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, and you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All of those decrees go back as decrees to the you know, the foundation of the world and the eternal life conference and the, the boundaries of, of, of time. But then the point where that appointment becomes effective is this point right here. And I think that becomes significant as well. That it was when he was made perfect that he became the grounds. And when he became the grounds, his appointment as the high priest was activated. All right, so his appointment as high priest was then activated. The order of Melchizedek priesthood. The order of Melchizedek priesthood. This is not just him, it's all of us. He's the high priest, but what are we? 
We are priests in Christ, right? He is the, uh, the, the cornerstone, but we too are choice and precious in the sight of God. We too are living stones being built up to this heavenly priesthood. The order of Melchizedek priesthood is foundationally centered in the high priest. And in the high priest, source grounds basis for eternal salvation. We can't separate out his high priesthood from our salvation. They are inseparable because it is his appointment as high priest that is equated with the grounds of our salvation. And that's just simply a verbal link. That's a grammatical connection in the participles that are found here in verses 9 and 10. So he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated. That's the participle then that coincides with... with um, he became the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, are we clear on that? Apart from his appointment as high priest, none of us are saved. It is interconnected and inseparable. And this is, uh, this is powerful. I think this helped launch the Reformation. This is what Calvin and Luther and all the Reformers recognized when they realized that, wait a minute, we are all believer priests in this, in this stewardship. We all stand before the Father in Christ. And the whole artificial division that the Roman Catholic Church came up with, where you had clergy and you had laity and you needed the clergy to take the laity as intercessors to the Father, none of that's true. Each one of us stands before the Father because Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Each one of us is a believer priest. And that whole clergy-laity distinction is the, it's the thing that God hates in Revelation as far as the Nicolaitans and the, and the, uh, the evil there. So the order of Melchizedek priesthood is foundationally centered in the high priest source grounds basis for eternal salvation. And and it's uh, stated here, we've previously seen it in chapters 2, 3, and 4. We're going to see it again in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. You think that's a big deal? Something that gets stated again and again and again in every chapter from 2 to chapter 10? That's a big deal, all right? That gets your attention. And so let's, uh, let's remind ourselves of what we've already seen and let's uh, tease ourselves with what's coming up. But back in chapter 2 and verse 17, remember this? He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. See, until he goes through that suffering, he's not ready to be that merciful and faithful high priest. The Father has decreed it. The Father is ready to activate it, to assign it. But he's not ready to step into that office, to step into that role until he is made perfect, until he becomes the ground's basis source of eternal salvation. And once he is, then he has now become, as 2.17 says, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. And this, uh, I think some folks had a big aha moment last Sunday morning as we were describing this, all right? Because being the, being the lamb is one thing, spotless and blameless without sin. He is the lamb without spot or blemish. He is qualified to go to the cross as the offering, yes. And he could have gone to the cross, you know, at birth or any time in his life as a 12-year-old boy. Instead of going to the temple, he could have gone to the cross as the sinless, blameless, spotless Lamb of God. He was always qualified to be the offering, but to become the offerer, that's something else. To become the justifier, to become the priest that ministers the offering. You understand? That's the difference. And so qualified to be the offering is his sinlessness, where he's blameless. But qualified to be the priest ministering that offering that required the suffering. That required the perfection. He had to be made perfect. He had to be made the grounds and basis and, and source of eternal salvation. So uh, this is then the other side of that coin, because he's both. He is the lamb and he's the priest. Okay? We understand how unique that is. The, the, the typology in the Old Testament couldn't, couldn't convey them with a single picture. It's like scapegoat. 
You had to have one goat that walked away free and you had to have another goat that died because you couldn't use the same goat to teach both points unless you miraculously raised the goat back to life again, right? But both goats are teaching the, the principle of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ died, but Jesus Christ also took our sins away. So we have two different pictures. Same thing with the priest. You have a priest, you have an offering. Jesus is both. He is the priest and the offering. And uh, it was being perfected that then caused the perfected sufferer to become the grounds, the basis, the source for eternal salvation so he could function in his priesthood to save each one of us, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We know for a fact that when he died on the cross, the Father was propitiated. The Father was satisfied. But Jesus had to make the propitiation. And that's what happens there. So that's 2.17. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, not spectators of a heavenly entertainment, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so here we are. This is our confession. He is the high priest. High priest is not only priest, okay? He is the high priest. We are priests in this priesthood. We are priests in this confession. It is our confession. Jesus and us, the body of Christ and the head, this is us. The uh, Melchizedek priesthood that is called here our confession. He's the high priest. Chapter 4 and verse 14, really 14 and following to the end of the chapter. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we have a priest that not only entered through a veil, we have a priest that passed through the heavens. This becomes significant. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence. We're supposed to engage in our priesthood. Because we have such a high priest, we can engage in our priesthood. And what the book of Hebrews is going to teach us is how to do this. How do I engage in my priesthood? Well, you're doing it right now. Because you're assembled for instruction. You are standing before the Father's throne as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is a priestly function. We're going to start to observe more and more of these priestly functions and the sacrifices that we offer as we do so with priestly function. So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the outworking of our priestly function. Of course, 510 is where we are this morning, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I think I'm catching on to something here. I think Jesus is a priest. Chapter 6 and verse 20. Uh, let's see, verse 19 says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Biblical Christianity should be the most stable thing in the world. And believers that are in the word of God should be stable based upon our priesthood. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner. Let me ask you something. If nobody else goes in there, what kind of forerunner is he? <laughs> All right forerunner demands after followers that's right i don't know what the what's the corollary forerunner anti-runner anti-walker i don't know we follow where he leads as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of melchizedek all right, I'm starting to catch this. All right, he's the high priest. It's a Melchizedek priesthood. He's there. We need to join him. We've got to get active in our priesthood. That's 620. In chapter 7 and verse 16, <clears throat> we have some things that are pretty obvious. Um, you know, he's from Judah. Jesus was from Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a Davidic descendant of Judah. And uh, 7.14 says, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. You read everything Moses said about priests, and it's all Levitical. Aaron, the high priest, the tribe of the Levites, and everything. There was not a hint of anything Judah in priesthood in Moses. 
And so that's evident. Here's something more clear. Another priest now has arisen according to the likeness of Melchizedek. All right, so this is something newer, something better, something greater, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. That's why I say it's all of us. From the moment of our salvation, we receive that indestructible life. We are ushered into this priesthood by virtue of being placed in Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verse 26 of the same chapter. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. How fitting is that? Who does not need daily like those high priests? He's so much greater than any Levitical high priest. Those guys were sinners. They had to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And year after year after year, they were always doing that. But Jesus, once and for all, offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, see, the word of the oath came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So we have this perfected high priest forever. So chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, three times in chapter 7. It's been pounded again and again and again. And in case you missed it, chapter 8, verse 1 says, now the main point in what has been said is this. Okay? Just in case you missed it, are you, are you following? Are you tracking with me here? We have such a high priest. Isn't he awesome? And how, how cool for us that this is him and this is us and here we are. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And he's seated at the right hand, we're seated at the right hand, and we're in him. Notice, a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. That mosaic replica was just a replica. Jesus is in the real deal. Moses made his replica after the pattern of what he saw in heaven. Jesus went to heaven. We have a a high priest that has passed through the heavens. He is now seated at the Father's right hand in the true tabernacle. And so uh, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. He's not just in the Holy of Holies doing nothing. Okay? It's not like he's got a title. That happens a lot in our world. People get a title. They got a fancy office. They got a nameplate on the door. And then they sit there and you wonder, what are they doing? (laughs) You know? Seriously? Is there a real work that's getting done here? Or is this just an empty title? It just seems like he's got a title, but what's he really doing? Well, Jesus is not an empty title. He is the head of the church. And the head of the church is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he is constantly ministering in the Holy of Holies, and we're supposed to be also. We're supposed to be also with gifts and sacrifices to offer. All right, so the rest of chapter 8 is going to describe how uh, the contrast between the heavenly and the earthly and uh, spend some time with that. we get down to chapter 9 and verse 11. And this is where um, there's so much here, again, talking about the earthly versus the heavenly and, um, and what happens there. We talk about this a lot when we talk about how the, holy, the high priest goes in one day a year. That's 9-7. You have the outer court, the inner court, the, out, the holy of holies. Into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And uh, that's not what's going to happen with Jesus. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, as verse 11. See, our Melchizedek priesthood is forward-looking. Our Melchizedek priesthood, yes, it's grounded in what he did in first advent, but it is forward-looking to what's coming up. 
Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He hung on the cross and the veil was rent in two of the earthly replica. He had no business going in there and didn't go in there. Never once did he go in there, had no need to go in there. All he had to do was rent that veil in two to demonstrate how empty that room was, to demonstrate how finished the work was on the cross. And when he ascended to heaven is when he did the real work. Not in the replica, but in the reality. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, day of atonement, that expires. <laughs> you got to do that again next year. And the next year, and the next year, and every year they've been doing it all this time. They keep doing it. Every year, here we go again. Jesus, once and for all. He's not going to suffer again and again and again. He's not going to suffer oftentimes since the foundation of the world. He suffers once and for all. Suffering equipped him to be the Redeemer. He did the work of redemption. Not going to suffer again. The Father doesn't want to remember those sins ever again. He judged it already. Chapter 10 and verse 21. Well, let me see. Before I leave chapter 9, let me hit some of these other things. Verse 9.24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Isn't that beautiful? Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Year after year after year, another animal dies, another animal dies, another animal dies. Not so with Jesus, once and for all with his own blood. Otherwise, he would need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, once and once only at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put it away. See, the Day of Atonement just covered, didn't put it away. Atonement is a covering. Jesus put it away. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So that's what we can look forward to now. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once after this, the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That's why our priesthood is forward-looking. That's why our priesthood in Christ as we are waiting, because we're going to appear with him. He, we're riding white horses even as he descends on his white horse, landing at Armageddon and conquering this world. Chapter 10 then. Headed for verse 21. The paragraph starts in verse 19. My favorite chapter in my favorite book. Chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. And verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, this is us, we have confidence by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We're not spectators. We're participants. We are priests functioning in our priesthood with our high priest. We couldn't do what he did on the cross, but now that he's done that, we're right there with him in the Holy of Holies, serving as priests in his priesthood. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Those are our sacrifices. That's our priesthood. Not only are we engaged in our priesthood, we are mutually stimulating one to another. I stimulate you. You stimulate me. We all stimulate each one of us, all of us, collectively. That's our priesthood. Love and good deeds. Doing good and sharing with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And so we do. We come together. We stimulate. Not forsaking rapture doctrine. That's the episunagoge of our assembling together as is the habit of some. And we're going to get there. I'm going to, I'm going to spend a lot of time, I think, developing that when we get to chapter 10. It's a popular verse. It's very popular. Preachers love it because it's a great don't skip church kind of verse. Okay? 
And if you find a verse that says, quit skipping church, there's, every preacher I know is going to hit that hard. But I think it's actually incorrect in the context. I think grammatically, syntactically, the episunagoge there is only used twice anywhere in the New Testament. The other time is clearly a rapture reference. I think this time is also a rapture reference. We're not talking about our earthly gathering. We're talking about our heavenly gathering. So do not neglect your heavenly gathering. Our episunagoge, our ultimate assembling together. That's the rapture of the church. When Jesus descends and we are gathered together. Don't forsake rapture doctrine. The churches that abandon the rapture, the churches that abandon imminent return of Christ, they're throwing away their own diligence. I mean, imminency prompts diligence every time. If you know the trumpet can sound today, then there's no time for carnality and foolishness and all that stupid stuff. The rapture is coming today. Let's walk right. Let's serve in our priesthood. Don't forsake rapture doctrine, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day, rapture doctrine, drawing near. All right, so we have this order of Melchizedek priesthood. The fact is, most believers are happy to be saved because that means they're going to go to heaven when they die. However, the real impact of being saved We're vested into the Melchizedek priesthood and we have priestly function today. We should be functioning in our priestly function today. And yes, whenever that comes that we do die, rapture or physical death, whenever, down the road or today or whenever, that's God's good pleasure. Today, I'm going to be functioning in my priesthood. You know, the priesthood is serious business. The fire can't go out on the altar. We've got morning and evening sacrifices. We've got daily sacrifices. We've got all day, every day. Day after day, as long as it's called today, we need to be about our Father's business, and that's a priestly business in Christ. All right, now we're ready for 11 through 14. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And you say, who in the world's Melchizedek? Concerning him, or concerning whom, or concerning which... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since, (laughs) what does it say? Since you're dumb as a box of rocks. (laughs) No, that's not what he says. See, here's the thing. You have become dull of hearing, okay? And that's on you. That's on you. We should be eager We should be eager, like newborn babes, to long after the pure milk of the word. We should be eager. We want to grow in grace and knowledge. We should be eager to be diligent. That's eagerness to stand before him as workmen needing not to be ashamed. We should be hungry. We should have the attitude of eagerness. And when we don't, when we start to drift in our hunger, when our appetite gets diminished, we can actually regress. We regress from... Meat eating, back to the milk eating again. And uh, that's what we see here. You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. You should be devouring the solid food. You used to. But you've been drifting for a while, and now we've got to nurse you back to health. And in nursing you back to health, it's, you've got to go back to milk again. You've got to get your, got to get your, uh, your feet, back, feet back under you again. You need milk again. Now, it's curious how this happens in the spiritual walk. It doesn't happen in, in uh, physical life. No one reverts back to an infancy in, in physical life. Someone will send me an email this afternoon where it's happened before. I'm not talking about a comedy movie or Mork from Mork or something like that. All right. You need milk again. Why? Because you come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is an infant. Now, you can get accustomed to it, but guess what? We're creatures of habit. We get accustomed to what we get accustomed to. 
And when we start starving ourselves, we get accustomed to starving ourselves. And then having become accustomed to starving ourselves, we're okay with that. We end up becoming spiritually malnourished and ignorant of how malnourished we are. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. All right. Wow, what a conclusion to chapter 5, huh? The author of Hebrews has a lot to say about Melchizedek, about the Melchizedek priesthood, and he can't do it. What he gives us in these chapters is what he can give, what the Holy Spirit can give, but there's deeper things he wanted to get into and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him do it. They weren't ready for it. And that's curious to me. Hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Now, did you notice something here? There's a spectacular little curious we in verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. Hebrews 5.11, not one, Hebrews 5.11 is the first of several we statements in Hebrews which hint at some form of plurality in authorship. And it's just a hint. It's a little passing reference. It's a little hint. There's three more of them or four more of them in, in chapter 6. We don't, as we said, I think, you know, we don't know who the author is. I used to think Barnabas. Lately, I'm going with Luke. But whoever the author was, it was not a singularity. He had people with him. He had people with him who were on board with his doctrine. So there was some form of plurality in the authorship. It's a typo there. It's not 5.1, it's 5.11. First of several we statements. So concerning him, we have much to say. Well, who's the we there, Luke? Maybe it was Luke and Barnabas. <laughs> okay. Wouldn't that be hilarious? We've been arguing about it all this time. But there's a we. And uh, the author, the primary author, most of it is an I, and so I don't have any problem with a singular primary author, but he has some, uh, some fellow believers with him that uh, are on board with everything he wants to tell them about Melchizedek, but the audience is not yet ready. Some other clues in 6.1, uh, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us, and most of the we's and us's are the authors, including his readers, uh, but notice, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God. So that's a let us, I think, in the sense of the author and his readers. But then he says uh, of instructions about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All that's basic. Those are just the basics, the elementary things, the stuff you learn when you're a new believer. Let's get on to some meat. Let's get to some real deep stuff. And then there's another we in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. And this we will do. And I think that's a we that goes well with the 5.11 we in the sense that the primary author and his uh, partners are going to help to spell this out for, uh, for the Hebrews recipients. Likewise, verse 11. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And there clearly the author and his compatriots are the we, and then the recipients are the you, the all y'all, concerning all y'all, and things that accompany salvation. You got that? It's great to be saved. Let's, let's, uh, let's grab the greater things now. Let's grow in our salvation. Things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. We are speaking in this way, plural. Verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So with 511, 6.3, 6.9, 6.11, we got little glimpses that where whoever our mysterious anonymous author was, he wasn't alone. He was not alone. He had partners with him. He, had a, he was in fellowship with some other believers. And uh, yeah, that makes sense. He would have had an amanuensis unless he himself was had scrolled a uh, you know quilled a scroll. He would have had couriers. He would have had helpers that would carry the scrolls where they needed to go. Would have had other people. He probably patterned his ministry in a way that Paul patterned his ministry. And so you have uh, you have the example there. But we have a lot to say 
And it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Doctrinal discussions are difficult when disciples have dulled their discernment. Doctrinal discussions are difficult when disciples have dulled their discernment. You ever try to talk doctrine with a believer that just doesn't want to go there? You know? And you know they can. You want to talk about, you know, something from the Word of God. You want to talk about a, a verse. You want to talk about a principle. You want to talk about a psalm or, man, something from the Bible just got you excited. And the other person's like, eh, that's nice. Uh, what are you doing next weekend? Yeah. You want to go bowling? Yeah. And, and find how quickly they change the topic. And you think, huh, they're just not into you. Or they're just not, they're just not into the Word. That's what it is. Okay? They're just not into the Word. They're dull of hearing. They have dulled their discernment. You're like, oh, that's kind of sad. Man, you used to eat this stuff up. Okay. Well, now I know what to pray for. <laughs> okay. Now I know what to pray for. Understand, some doctrines are deeper than others, and some doctrines are difficult, even when you are in fellowship, even when you are on fire for the Word, even if you're the first pope. I'm teasing. Peter was not the first pope. But Peter, right, you have a, some people here have a Catholic background, or maybe you know a Catholic, or maybe you've heard the legend, but to Roman Catholics, Peter was the first pope, okay? Which has got to be pretty embarrassing since he struggled to understand some of Paul's doctrine. And he said so in 2 Peter 3.16, okay? There are deeper doctrines. In fact, Melchizedek doctrine is deep stuff. If you're dull of hearing, though, forget about it. That's, that's uh, what we're seeing here. So uh, verse 11, verse 14 some doctrines are meat doctrines and some doctrines are milk doctrines. I mean, it's pretty clear. There's solid food. There's milk. And, uh, you know, you try to shove a steak in an infant's mouth, not going to work. He's not ready for that. Doesn't have the teeth for that. Can't chew it. Can't swallow it. That baby, that, the baby's geared for milk. Okay? However, once you've grown up, if you're an adult male or female, adult anything, you, you should have solid food. You shouldn't be limited to nursing. That's a problem too. All right. So that's Hebrews 5, 11 and 14. I think we've got other principles in Isaiah 6, 10 and Luke 24, 25. I mean, if you're, if you're slow to hear, why are you slow to hear? Are you putting your fingers in your ears? Are you not hearing because you don't want to hear? That's not good. Isaiah 6.10. What is it that's in your ears? Did God put that there? Did you put that there? Are you intentionally not listening? Isaiah 6.10 is a voice of, uh, is an application of judgment here. This is a heavenly scene. Isaiah gets to go up to heaven and see some things in heaven and looking around immediately feels like, oh, I shouldn't be here. He was hearing things. He's hearing the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. And he says, wait a minute. Why am I here? <laughs> okay. And uh, this is the great, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I think he just wanted to get out of there quicker than anything. So he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. So there's a commission for you. The, the uh, not the apostle, the prophet Isaiah says, okay, I'll send you. Here you go. They won't understand a thing you tell them. Enjoy your ministry. <laughs> and, but, and tell them that. Tell them, keep listening to me. Keep listening to me. Listen to everything I tell you. I'm going to be naked for three years and keep listening. But you won't understand a thing I'm going to tell you. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. 
That's an interesting application of Yahweh's judgment when He hardens their hearts. And so then I said, well, how long, O Lord? How long does this uh, dullness take place? Well, until tribulation disciplines them. And then they'll be eternally repentant for the millennial kingdom. All right. Jesus called uh, these disciples slow of heart. Luke twenty four twenty five. Remember this? We were here not too long ago. Might have even been last week. Luke 24. Do you remember the disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus and then the disciples in the upper room? He's walking with these guys on the road to Emmaus and they're telling him all about what Jesus, what happened to Jesus and how uh, he was crucified and how he was buried and how a bunch of women said the, the tomb was empty. He says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So if there, are, if there are shades of this, if there are de, you know, degrees of, of hardness, if slowness is a, is a partial hardening, if slow of heart is a step along the way to hardness of heart, then you're on that track, okay? You're on that track. It's like arteriosclerosis, right? It's like the hardening of the arteries. And there's a process that gets you there. And if you're partway there, then you're not all the way there yet. All right. So what, what's the answer then? To go ahead and harden it the rest of the way? Or, no, to soften the heart, to, to be quick to hear, not slow to hear, quick to hear. Not dullness of hearing, but sharpness of hearing. And so, um, you know, and that, that rebuke, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary was it not necessary? You know, when you phrase a question like that, the answer is kind of built in, right? The, you know what the right answer is based on the way that he phrased it. It's like when, when you know, your spouse says, you're not watching another football game, are you? You can pick up on the tone of voice and the language and the expression. You go, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah four is probably enough. I, I, I'm done. Yeah. So here's this question. Was it not necessary? Of course it was necessary. And if you were in the Scriptures, you would have known it. For the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory. So beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself and all the Scriptures. Systematic Bible teaching. Beginning with Moses and then all the prophets. It's systematic why we teach the way we teach. Now, yes, there are some doctrines that are deeper than others. First Chronicles 2.10, there are the depths of God, the deep things of God. By the way, there's also the deep things of Satan, which we learn about in Revelation. But for this morning, for to us, God, oh, so let me back up. We speak God's wisdom. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. We speak God's wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. See, God's wisdom makes the wisdom of this world foolishness. And then, of course, even the angels, the fallen angels especially, what do they know? We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. God withheld things. He, held, he withheld things from the Jews. He withheld things from humanity. He withheld things from angels. The whole church is a mystery. Where you and I are today, none of that was revealed until it was revealed. And then he gave Greek scriptures to explain it all. The wisdom, verse 8 says, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Satan would have known the totality of God's plan, he wouldn't have put Jesus on the cross. Because that's the thing that defeated him. 
But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. And this is the, the glory of God's design. And, you know, the, the angels are genius. Satan's a genius. But God didn't reveal it. He kept it hidden. And so here we have it. Now to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. This is our privilege as church-age believers. This is our privilege as Melchizedek priests in Christ. God is making these things known to us. Not that we're smarter than the angels. Okay? Not about how smart we are to figure these things out. It's about positionally who we are in Christ. The gifting that we have of the Holy Spirit to to lead us in all things, even the deep things of God. You notice that in verse 10? For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, the depths of God. So, wow. What a privilege. What resources that we have in Christ. And here we have it. And even... uh, You know, a brand new believer just saved this morning, a five-year-old just saved this morning, has the same Holy Spirit we all have. And God can begin to open their eyes, open their ears, open their hearts, teach them, feed them, if they're humble to receive it, if they're humble to be fed. If you come here this morning and you want to be fed and you're hungry and you're humble, the Holy Spirit's going to feed you. Even though we're given some deep things about Melchizedek and we're talking about some amazing things and and uh, man, we've bounced around to Isaiah and Genesis and Luke, and we've been everywhere today. The Holy Spirit's going to teach you. It's a faithful promise. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. <laughs> you know? Oh, I've got an atheist friend, and I've been witnessing to him. I've been talking to him. I've been praying for him. And he's all about the science. All about the science, all about physics, all about this, and put it in a test tube, put it under a microscope. Well, let me tell you, it's what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. So there's not a scientist or a philosopher or any human wisdom that's going to find what the Holy Spirit's revealing to us in the Word of God. All right. So, yes, some doctrines are deeper than others, some doctrines are difficult. Honestly, some doctrines are difficult. 2 Peter 3.16. Even if you're in fellowship, even if you're a gifted apostle, even if you've written two books of the Bible. Yeah, Peter knows some things. Second Peter 3.13, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. All right, we get that. Some doctrines are tough. So chew on it. It's like some meat is tough, right? Milk is never tough, but meat can be tough. So keep chewing, keep chewing. And if it is hard to understand, what's going to happen? Well, the untaught and the unstable are going to distort them, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. By the way, this just takes all the whole Pauline corpus and lies, uh, places it under the label of scriptures. They are untaught, they are unstable, they are unprincipled in verse 17. The un 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 enemies that uh, pervert Bible doctrine. Untaught, unstable, unprincipled. So don't get carried away with them. Is it tough? Oh well, you've got the same Holy Spirit we all have. So don't, uh, don't just throw your hands up and follow after the untaught, unstable, unprincipled man. That's critical. All right. For, by, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. And by the way, some people don't like this verse. 
They like the verse in James 3 where it says, let not many of you become teachers. And they love that verse. In fact, so much so, they've dedicated their life to that verse in not becoming teachers. Well, some of you should be, and by now, you ought to be. Okay? Both passages are true. We apply each passage in its appropriate context. And when, we, when it says, let not many of you become teachers, we say, well, wait a minute. Were they just not ready at that point? Shouldn't every believer grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? That's what Hebrews 5 says. All right. So there was a particular crowd that James was writing to. And, and yes, there are people who should not be teachers until they grow to the point where they ought to be, by now, teachers. Okay? And so, um, by now, you ought to be. By this time, you ought to be teachers. And, and you can't. Because you have need again for someone to teach you the ABCs. You're going back to the basics. You're going back to the stoicheia, to the fundamental things. The elementary principles. And uh, you can't exactly be a theology professor if you're still learning your alphabet. That's a, that's a problem. And the problem is, is that they delayed it. This is like, uh, well, I got all kinds of movies today. This is like failure to launch, right? This is willful, prolonged childhood, folly, intentionally prolonged folly, intentionally prolonged childhood. But I repeat myself, okay? Childhood is folly. That's what a child is. Till they grow up. Intentionally prolonged folly, it is inexcusable. And it is disciplined by the God of wisdom. <clears throat> God uh, designed it so that we have parents. <clears throat> and parents are designed for more than just birthing us. <laughs> okay? Parents are designed for nurturing us, for bringing us up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord for training up the next generation, for training that child to become a young adult, to launch him into, or her, into their adult capacity. And this actually has come up repeatedly in our Proverbs class. Because in Proverbs, we have wisdom and we have the fool. And then, you know, we have the Word of God so we can quit being fools. We can learn, our, learn uh, the Word of God and have God's viewpoint on, on sin and life and, and everything. And so we live our lives according to the Word of God and we're not fools. Except there's a crowd that kind of likes to be a fool and likes to stay a fool. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 1. intentionally prolonged folly. Now, if you have a, a, a crafty mindset that thinks, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if you think you can just avoid accountability, well, if I don't know more, the less I know, the less I'm accountable for. To whom much is given shall much be required. So don't, if you don't, of him they entrusted, them they will expect all the more. So don't entrust anything to me. And then I'm not accountable for anything. Okay? Wrong. <laughs> Interesting theory, but it's a carnal theory. Because you may not want to receive it, but he's giving it to you. He is entrusting it to you. He is calling you to this life of service. Now that you are a believer, he has these expectations, this priesthood in Christ. And so to try to delay growth, to try to not know things, to try to just intentionally keep yourself oblivious, that's not a sanctified ignorance. That is a willful folly, and God will judge that. He will judge that. So in Proverbs 1, how long, verse 22, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? There's nothing wrong with being naive when you're young. 
There's nothing wrong with being foolish when you're young. And, and we, we, you know, we all say silly things when we're not old enough to know better. Because we just don't know any better. But ten years from now, it won't be so cute. Right? A toddler can say something and we laugh. And we say, oh, isn't that funny? Okay, well, when he's in his 20s or in his 30s and his 40s and he's still saying the same stupid stuff, that's a problem. So how long, O oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. And fools hate knowledge. See, it becomes willful. It becomes defiant. And, you know, if you are naive, I mean, don't you want to grow up? Aren't you dreaming about the day when you're old enough to do whatever or when the day comes that you don't need whatever or the things you can anticipate when, when, uh, when you're not so naive, when you're not so simple? You're not, you're not craving the, the, the simple-mindedness, are you? You're not craving the, the, uh, the ignorance. If you are, that's a problem. We're not designed like that. We're designed to learn. We're designed to grow. In chapter 9. So I think there's, there's more here. I mean, it's not like it's hard to find. If you back up to verse 20, wisdom is shouting. Shouting in the street, lifting up her voice in the square. She's crying out. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters uh, her sayings. And so there it is. It's there if you want to listen to it. So turn to it, Okay. Chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, also in Proverbs. Backing up to verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. This is an amazing palace. This is a house, wow. Anything big enough that takes seven Supporting pillars, that's a, that's a king's palace right there. And we get to live in this. We get to dwell in the Word of God. The finest food, the finest wine, the finest table, all of this is here. Sent out her maidens, she calls, from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. Whoever, to him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat of my food, drink of the wine I have mixed. I mean, it's there. If you want to learn the Word of God, it's available. Forsake your folly and live. Proceed in the way of understanding. To me, it's sad, the believers that are saved but aren't true disciples. And they live, but they don't really live. They have eternal life, but they're not living that life. They haven't taken hold of the eternal life to which they were called. They have it. But they're not living it out. They're not walking in the newness of life. They're not being transformed by the renewing of their minds. They're not thriving in the Word of God. They visit occasionally. They drop in every now and then. But they're not comfortable there. They don't live there. They don't make their home there. They're not abiding there. And it's like on those rare occasions they happen to stop in. It's almost accidental. And they don't know their way around. You know? Do you know your way around your own house? Can you find the kitchen? I can. Can you find the bathroom? Can you find the bedroom? Can you find... I mean, you should know your way around your, your own house. If you get lost at home, how, how much time do you really spend there? Okay? And we're supposed to be at home in the Word of God. But to me, I find brothers and sisters, I find they're saved. They'll tell me about how they got saved. They'll tell me about how they believed in Jesus. All right, I'm glad you're saved, but why aren't you living in the Word of God? Say, how long will you prolong your, uh, your foolishness? And so forsake your folly and live. Proceed in the way of understanding. It is a course. You have to proceed in it. And you haven't even taken step one yet. Proceed in the way of understanding. Psalm 94, 8 through 10 get out of Proverbs and we go to the Psalms. Psalm 94. Anybody that thinks there's no deep doctrine in the Psalms, guess again, there's all kinds of doctrine in the Psalms. 
Psalm 94, 8 through 10. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. See, God's calling names. They're a bunch of dummies, and he tells them that. <laughs> Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? All right, there it is. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? You know, this might have escaped your notice, but I am the creator God of the universe, and I created eyes and ears, and I gave them to you. You're not using them. And uh, if I'm the one that created all these things, you think I'm as blind and deaf and dumb as you are? See, here's the thing. When people prolong their carnality, they prolong their ignorance, they prolong their senseless condition, then it's a little bit of a defense mechanism to just kind of assume that God is as clueless as you are. Okay? That He's not really watching. That He's not really paying attention. Because when it does cross your mind that God is watching you, ooh, wait a minute. He's always watching me. God is watching me. Wait a minute. I'm accountable. I'm not fooling him. Okay? I can fool my spouse. I can fool my pastor. I can fool other people. But I'm not fooling God. He's watching. He knows what I'm doing. He knows that this whole church thing is just a sham and I don't really, I'm not learning anything. I'm not really, really want to be there. I'm just making the wife happy. Okay? But God sees through all that. Because he's the one that created the eye, created the ear, created the heart. He can see, he can hear, he can know. And he knows all of this. He watches everything. The, uh, so he who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? He who teaches man, even he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. They are a mere breath. You know, you have an advantage over someone that's younger. You have an advantage when your kid's trying to pull something on you and you think, I know what they're doing. I've seen that. I, I did that at his age. In fact, I did that a year younger than he's doing it now. Okay. But now, that, that's the scale we're talking about. Here's God and here's us. We're but a breath. We're but a breath. We're here, we're gone 100 years later or less. And what is that? The eternal I am has seen all this from the beginning. He sees everything. He knows every heart, every desire. He knows the thoughts of man. So, trying to prolong our, uh, prolong our ignorance is, uh, is nonsensical. I'm going to have to close with this, but these elementary principles, you've got to build on the basics. Elementary principles should be built upon lest they become a perishable skill. Elementary principles should be built upon. You say, well, it's basic. How can I lose the basics? You can lose the basics if you neglect them and if you don't build upon them. If you're content that the basics is all you need, you'll lose those too. Okay? And that's not just me saying it. It's Hebrews and Colossians saying it. Elementary principles should be built upon. That's why I don't, I don't mind going through basics again. Let's go through basics again next week. Let's do it again. Let's do it every so often. We can go through basics again and again and again. I'll learn something new every time. But I'm not going to limit myself to the basics. I'm going to build on the basics as well. I'm going to have the meat with the milk. Elementary principles should be built upon. Again, Hebrews 5.12 This time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the basics, elementary principles. You need them again. You need them again because if you don't build upon them, you're going to lose them. All right. And if you've lost them, then you can't build upon them. You've got you to go back over the basics again. Then you can build upon them. So you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. So 
go again, get the milk again, get the basics again, get the elementary things again, and you'll find it'll come quicker the second time, it'll come quicker the third time, it'll come quicker the, you know, each time you go back to them. But then once you get them, don't stop there. Say, okay, I'm going to go past this now. I'm going to go past the basics. There's deeper things that God is calling us to. Let's get some meat. Let's sink our teeth into some solid meat. And let's do this one to another. Colossians 3.16 Let's do this one to another. Let's fellowship in the Word of God. Because this is what happens when the Word of Christ richly dwells within you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we're building on those basic things and we're teaching the deeper things and we're ministering those deeper things in the Word of God one to another. We're letting it dwell richly within us. We're not neglecting it. If you just neglect it, what happens? It goes away. That's right. It's a perishable skill. You forget it. You lose it. Okay? One of those use it or lose it kind of things. You're not using the Word of God. You're not even using the basics anymore. And it's gone. And you regress back to an infancy. You regress back to a a childhood. You're back to needing milk again. All right, well, almost finished it. We'll come back to this next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. We can tie the rest of chapter 5 together. And then uh, we'll be ready for chapter 6. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.